The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, all, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. Uh, I'm John Howard, and right here with me is Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is a regular on the podcast, very familiar name, Paul Mitchell of Redistricting Partners and Political Data Inc. And we're going to ask Paul about why all the resignations resignations in the legislature and Congress. Paul, welcome. Thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So this is what you call a moving target. We were, before the show, I was talking with Tim about five resigning or leaving, whatever reason, leaving, not seeking re-election in December or now, 15, about two or three weeks later, the latest story I saw now, this is February 11th. This is a good time story. So at least 35 in both houses. And if you get if you get five more here, you're talking about a third of the legislature. So Paul, what's your take on what's going on? Why is everybody leaving? Uh, you know, maybe they just uh, tired of Sacramento, but no, there's, there's actually, I think a multitude of reasons why uh, there's this shifting happening. And uh, I think a part of it is uh, we've seen a wave of kind of resignations that have happened where people have already left office for a range of reasons, other offices or jobs. Um, Then you've got a segment of, uh, and mostly we're talking about the assembly here, of assembly members running for other offices, um, uh, Congress or uh, the state Senate or uh, you know, even county supervisor or something. And then you've got uh, a third set that are ones that just simply aren't running for re-election. They've announced that they aren't going to be back. Um, And one we'll talk about, they actually announced that they're not going to be back in 22, but they will be back in 24. Um, And then finally, the the final set is, and this is a little bit uh, uh, still to be determined who are the incumbents that aren't coming back in this set is where we have incumbent incumbent races. And um, again, this is mostly in the assembly, but uh, you know, we just averted a incumbent incumbent race in the Senate with that SD uh, uh, 16, the Caballero Hurtado race where Hurtado said she's going to run for the district of the South. Um, and we will have uh you know, incumbent, incumbent on the Senate side too. But the assembly side really is, I think, where we should focus. It's the most interesting. Um, and we can kind of go down the list if you want, and we can discuss yeah, sure. what we're I seeing. Guess, uh, you know, when I first heard about these, I, I thought, well, we're talking about election year. We have new, newly drawn districts. Uh, people are looking at these districts and thinking, hey, uh, I'm not going to spend my time r- raising money or all my energy to get elected in a district where I don't even know the people that well are representing them. So I thought the redistricting, redrawing the lines was a factor, a major factor in people leaving, but it may not be. It may be just a burnout thing or people are tired of the Sacramento culture or one, I think it was Chad Mays who later, you know, he got reelected as independent after being a Republican leader for a period, said he was tired of the partisanship and the cloud of the lobbyists and I wonder if others, you know, sort of echo that or they're just basically burnt out. Yeah. So I, when we, I, I think there's a range of this stuff and sure. If Sacramento was this really well-functioning, exciting place where people felt like they could make enormous changes, um, then maybe we wouldn't have the same kind of drop off that's happening. Um, uh, but 
yeah, I mean, maybe for some members, this uh, uh, the sacramental life has become a little bit of a drag and they're ready to move on. Um, remember the whole setup of this, just to kind of step back, is that we used to have a term limit structure that allowed members to have three terms in the assembly and two terms in the Senate. Yeah. And so when they got into the assembly, they were already running for one of the Senate districts. It was kind of a, um, you know, if I would tell candidates for the assembly that if you don't know who you're going to run against for the state Senate, then you're not like a real candidate. Like that's a sign of seriousness was knowing not just what assembly seat you were running for, but also what was the race you were facing in two, four, six or eight years when you're going to be running for the state Senate. Yeah. And um, that was the life cycle. Uh, now, starting 2012, we're under a new term limits uh, structure where you can serve up to 12 years total, no matter what house you're in. So generally, that would be three terms in the Senate or six terms in the Assembly. Um, and you can move, but there's not like an extension of life for moving. In fact, sometimes moving from one house to the other can kind of shorten your your life because you um, you know, run a, f- a few terms of the assembly, go to the Senate, and you can only serve maybe one term in the Senate. The uh, This 12-year window of opportunity, basically for those who came in in 2012 under the law for the first time, they start phasing out in 24. So we always expected that there was going to be this, you know, big surge of members retiring and uh, 24, 26, and 28. And essentially in that three election cycle window, you would have a full refresh of the entire state assembly um, and state Senate. Now, uh, there still will be that bubble in 24, 26, 28, when you have a lot of members terming out and that driving these res- these vacancies. Um, what I don't think anybody really predicted was this huge number of seats that would get turned over uh, in 2022, when literally zero members of the assembly are terming out. Um, but it looks as though if you were to compare like who was sworn in in 2020 and how many of those are going to be sworn in in 2022, that there's 27 members out of the 80 assembly members who aren't going to be sworn in in 22 um, that were sworn in in 20. So that's a huge transformation in the legislature and essentially takes that three year, three election cycle bubble we were expecting and extends it out to kind of a four election cycle bubble where we're going to see the transformation of the legislature. So all the set pieces that people know, you know, which members are the moderates, which members are the progressives, which members are leading the LGBTQ caucus or leading the Latino caucus. All of that stuff is going to be brand new, uh, you know, in just a few election cycles. Um, It's just that this transformation is going to be happening over kind of four cycles instead of three. Um, Partisan balance at all? Uh, Partisan balance probably, you know, partisan balance is not set to change because the lines that are drawn still create a kind of super, super majority for Democrats in the legislature and in the congressional delegation. But the names and the faces will change. Potentially, the power of kind of moderate Democrats is set to change because that's always something that is much more personality based than district based. It's not like you there's a little misnomer on this that you could say, oh, I drew a district that is competitive, um, so it's going to elect a moderate. Yeah, 
you know, sometimes it does. Sometimes you see moderates getting elected from the most heavily Democratic districts in Southeast L.A. Like it really there isn't like uh, um, a formula specifically that a certain type of district will elect a moderate like there are formulas for a certain type of district will likely elect a Latino or elect a Democrat or Republican. Um, You see moderates coming out of a moderate can get elected in any district, basically. Um, maybe except for like the Marin district or something like that. I was thinking Congress right now, the congressional elections obviously are important because of the split in the house, but even the loss of a couple seats in Congress by the Democrats to Republicans could have a national impact. I'm wondering, do you see any, is there a national impact from what you've seen so far in people announcing they're not going to be reelected or not seeking reelection? Well, you know, on the congressional, these districts that we have will elect Democrats and Republicans. Um, There are a few swing seats, um, but the names of who it is that's elected there, like on this list, we'll go through Christina Garcia or Robert Garcia in uh, that congressional district that goes, you know, from Long Beach up into the southeast cities in L.A., Um, that's not going to determine anything with regards to the composition of the delegation Dem and Reap. It's just going to be which individuals are filling those slots. Um, And obviously in the legislature, yeah, these, these partisan makeups are pretty locked. Mm -hmm. So I'll go through these real quick, just to kind of uh, give us a a view of these different four segments that I outlined. Hey, Paul, first, Really yeah. quick before you get into that, can I ask a, a question that's maybe far afield of our discussion, but you're the person I want to hear weigh in on this. So we've been redistricting across the country, and I've been reading that actually this is not as bad for the Democrats as had been expected. Can you just very quickly, is that true? Yeah. Is that accurate? Uh, and what do you make of that? Yeah. So um, this is the national redistricting. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's... Uh, This is something that I had been saying a long time ago, and that was that, um, yes, Republicans have inherent advantages when it comes to redistricting nationally. Um, In 2010, the Republicans uh, had more trifectas, and a trifecta is when you control the upper house, lower house, and governor's office in states than any party had had since like 1918 or something like that. So- the mass number of seats of that uh, of congressional districts that were controlled in the redistricting process by states where they had these trifectas gave Republicans a huge advantage in the 2010 cycle. And they still have huge numbers of trifectas, more control over redistricting in Republican states than Democrats do. And so that's a known known that they have control in big states. In many in many states, now the challenge is twofold. Uh, one, uh, when it actually comes to redistricting itself, in some cases, there's only so much you can do. So, in Texas, as an example, a lot of the areas with greatest population growth were having great population growth because of influx of Californians moving to Austin and density in cities, and so trying to gerrymander those districts to elect somebody that's not going to be a Democrat is harder. Um, 
So sometimes the, the composition of the districts is tough. Uh, and oftentimes you'll have these meetings with like a delegation, say you're meeting with the Republican delegation. Every member of that Republican delegation is going to say, yes, please create as many Republican districts as you can. But then every member of that delegation is also going to say, oh, but don't change my district. And when you have this incentive to like maximal gain your partisanship in your districts, um, it generally comes with less than ideal districts for a lot of your members. And in a lot of cases, this tendency to want to like maximize the partisan gain is countered or buffeted by people's unwillingness to give up a large chunk of their own district for that common good. And so the ability for them to like push the lever a lot on some of these states was kind of limited by their own, uh, you know, personal interests. The second thing is that when you say like, oh, they're going to pick up 20 seats in redistricting, the Republicans are going to pick up 20 seats in redistricting. It belies the fact that in 2010, they had a huge Republican gerrymander already. So uh, even if they did another huge Republican gerrymander in 2020 uh, cycle, how many more seats could they actually get? Like they already were um, kind of pushing the envelope. So those, a combination of those factors, the fact that um, A, it's hard to maximize your partisan gerrymandering when, you know, individual members are having their wants and needs and also when the in some states, the, the population growth was in areas that are more democratic and B, the fact that you're measuring it against a super Republican gerrymander to begin with means that Republicans maybe are gaining two, three, four seats from this redistricting, not 20 or 30 or something insane. Um, Democrats uh, did some gerrymandering of their own and in some states just kind of picked up more seats in California, Democrats did fine in the maps. And so that wasn't really an opportunity for Republicans to make gains. And yeah, ultimately, nationally, the redistricting picture will be less dramatic than people I think had expected. Um, but there were a number of us who were saying all along that these expectations of like Republicans picking up 20 or 30 seats from redistricting was crazy. You know, well, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry so for the long gonna, I interrupted you. You can go into our California stuff that everyone cares about. Yeah. So um, we'll just focusing on the assembly um, where I think all this action really is happening. Uh, first set of members to look at are those just outright resignations, people that just literally bailed special elections to fill these seats. Um, so first off, uh, Jim Frazier. Assemblyman Jim Frazier, uh, he left just for a job issue um, or was done. David Chu left to run for to get appointed as San Francisco city attorney. Um, this seems like forever ago, but Rob Bonta was sworn in in 2020. He won't be back in 2022. Uh, we have a new Bonta uh, in that seat, but uh, and she'll be running for reelection there. Ed Shaw is was appointed to a judge. Autumn Burke left for another job. Uh, Shirley Weber uh, left for a uh, uh, to be Secretary of State. Seems like a long time ago, but uh, she was sworn in in 2020. She won't be back in 2022. But again, like the Bonta, we have a new Weber uh, there. Uh, 
And then Lorena Gonzalez resigned, I think on January 1st or somewhere right around then, um, because as was much rumored, she was going to be taking a job leading the California Labor Federation. So that's our seven resignations just to start. Um, and that's a big number for you know, resignations uh, in a term like this. Then we have members running for other offices. This is kind of interesting. Um, so starting at the top, uh, Kevin Kiley running for a essentially what's a new uh, congressional district. Um, it is a congressional district uh, uh, that McClintock could have run for, um, but he's moving south to a district that Nunez might have run for if he hadn't resigned. Um, so Kylie has an opportunity to run there. Um, Jim Cooper, uh, Assemblyman Elk Grove area mostly, uh, is running for Sacramento County Sheriff. Uh, Mark Levine is leaving his Marin-based district to run uh, against Ricardo Lara for insurance commissioner. Uh, Adam Gray. Uh, this was an interesting story in the Central Valley with the congressional districts where um, different iterations of districts would come up and you'd look at these maps and you'd be like, okay, I see a seat for McNerney. I see a seat for Josh Harder. I see a seat for uh, Costa. I see a seat where somebody can run against Valadeo and you'd kind of like go down the Central Valley and every once in a while, an iteration of a district would come up and you'd be like, oh my God, that looks like an Adam Gray seat. <laughs> um, and so uh, Adam Gray has always kind of been rumored to potentially want to run for Congress and uh, he was almost boxed out because Josh Harder district was created, a, a district was created in his footprint that Josh Harder was going to run for. But then when McNerney announced he was going to retire, Josh Harder moves to the Stockton-based district, opens up this seat for Adam Gray, and he announced he was running for that. Um, uh, Kevin Mullen uh, running for Congress in the Jackie Spear seat. Uh, Rudy Salas running for Congress in, against or uh, in the Valadeo district. That's the district right above Bakersfield that goes down into Bakersfield and then goes up the Central Valley. Um, Richard Bloom left the assembly or announced he was going to leave the assembly to run for county supervisor and then decided he's not running for county supervisor, but then also didn't say he's running back for the assembly again. The district he was running that the district he currently is in was redrawn as a Santa Monica to West Hollywood district that um, Rick Zaburr, the executive director of Equality California, a group that was very, very, very involved in the redistricting process. They drew a district or they, they advocated for a district that would be the first district uh, in the state legislature to elect an openly gay uh, uh, legislator representing the city of West, West Hollywood, which is kind of insane to think that like the city of West Hollywood's never elected a gay legislator, um, but likely to happen this cycle. And Richard Bloom kind of stepping out of that race is part of what's allowing that to happen. Um, Christina Garcia is headed into the buzzsaw of the Garcia versus Garcia congressional race. Um, running against Long Beach Mayor Robert Garcia. From an analytics standpoint, this is a district that's very bottom heavy with high propensity voters in the Long Beach area and then reaches up into East LA, which is more of Christina Garcia's base. 
So that will be a challenge uh, for her, but she's leaving her assembly seat to run for it. Uh, Republican Kelly Sayarto is running for county supervisor in a very, to me, weird district that goes East County, San Diego, up to Riverside and up into Norco. Um, and then finally, uh, in the running for other offices, the, the 10th member of running for other offices is Janet Nguyen running for the state Senate. So right there, we're at 17 members who have kind of headed for the exits, uh, either for jobs, uh, appointments, or to run for something else. So that would right there be a big, huge pool of you know people bailing out. Then there's the ones that I, I don't have all the information on, but you know Patrick O'Donnell is announced he's not running for re-election. I always thought he was going to be running for mayor in Long Beach, but I haven't seen that pop up. Jose Medina is not running for re-election, and I haven't seen a reason why. Chad Mays isn't running for re-election. You mentioned earlier his kind of pointed statement that he made about not being able to change the culture in Sacramento. Um, to me, that looked more like a, uh, I don't know that he could win as an independent uh, or continue to win it as an independent. He's the only, so since they created the open primary, which ostensibly was supposed to allow more opportunity for independence, both in a voting perspective for them to be able to have votes that all the campaigns were trying to go after because they could help get people in the top two, even if they weren't a Democrat or Republican, and from elected candidates, where they believed when they wrote that, that there would be more independents making it into runoffs. Um, he's the only legislator or member of Congress that has been successful running as an independent in the nearly 12 years of that, or 10 years, at least five election cycles of that being the law. And I don't think that he could continue to do that indefinitely. Um, it was kind of almost fluky that he made it the first time. Um, so I don't know what that had to do with his thinking. Uh, Jordan Cunningham, uh, his district was basically just blown up. Uh, so he was one that is that thing you were saying at the outset of, you know, hey, Paul, how many of these people are leaving because their districts got disappeared or radically changed? He's the first one on this list that really, to me, had to leave because the district is gone. Uh, Bill Quirk um, is retiring. Uh, not a specific reason, although I don't think he's been very happy uh, the last couple of years in the legislature. Um, and uh, Frank Bigelow uh, is retiring. This is to finish up our list. It's the sixth of those not running for re-election. His is the funniest to me because apparently he's not running for re-election. So Patterson can finish out his term that he was nested in with him till 24. But then Frank Bigelow is going to get his big hat and come back in 2024 to serve his last term through 2026. So right there, we're at Paul, 23. So what happens in Bigelow's district after he leaves and before he comes back? That's a Patterson seat? Then? Patterson seat. Yeah. So Patterson will take it for two years, and then he'll finish up at the last two years. Okay. So that puts us at 23 and there's just four more. So uh, you've got Smith versus Lackey Republican member on member race in the 34th assembly district. In the 44th Assembly District, my old hometown, uh, 
Glendale through into the Valley. You've got a district where Laura Friedman and Adrene Nazarian were drawn into district together. Um, in the 73rd, you've got Stephen Choi versus Kadi Petrie Norris. And the 70, 75th, you have Randy Vopel versus Marie Waldron. Now that's four incumbent on incumbent races. Only four of those members can actually win. So we don't know which ones aren't coming back. Uh-huh. But uh, uh, that grand list gets us to 27 of the 80 assembly members that were sworn in in 2020, not being sworn in in 2022, uh-huh. which is more than we've seen in the last dozen years or, or so. I seem to call a lot of people... Uh- over time, not this many at one time, but after term limits was approved and it was three two-year terms in the assembly and two four-year in the Senate, people started peeling off as their term deadlines approached to go into other walks of life or to try to get in the next house if they could do it. But there was a lot of turbulence at that time, but nothing like this. I don't remember anything like this. No, and remember that the we didn't have the same kind of bubbles that we have now. We have this bubble of people that were elected 12, 14, 16, that are going to be termed out in 14 or 24, 26, 28. And those bubbles mean that you have relative calm in the waves between those bubbles, you know? So how many assembly members did we have terming out in, uh, you know, 18, 20 and 22? maybe like four or five assembly members being turned out in that period of time, very few. Um, This kind of shakeup outside when what should be a relatively tranquil period aside from the redistricting effects um, is pretty surprising. If you were to ask me a year ago, how many assembly members I thought were gonna be drawn out of districts or not returning after 2020 um, going into 22, I would say, eight or 10, not nearly 30, you know? Uh, Does your data pick up on the attitudes of voters toward people who leave, uh, say, midterm to take other jobs? I mean, you mentioned Lorena Gonzalez leaving. I remember uh, Henry Perea and Rubio leaving, abruptly leaving, not long after they'd been elected and taking jobs in the petroleum industry. Do you get any sense of that? People aren't happy with their people, with their elected representatives departing, at least abruptly? Yeah, you know, I don't know the, um, you know, obviously, Ruby and Perea don't have to go back to the voters to get, you know, affirmation anymore. So whether voters are happy or not with them really is inconsequential. Um, I'm sure voters don't love it when their legislators leave uh, to do something else. But, um, you know, they get to vote for somebody else to replace them. I think that the... uh, um, you do have the opposite where you have people running on a platform of like running for Congress and saying, you know, I'm only going to run for three terms because I think we should have term limits. But then magically after three terms, they think, well, you know, the country needs me uh, and they continue to run. It always needs them. But the uh, and even that, like the consequence of that isn't that great. Um, I think it's more inside baseball when, you know, we, we think about members who are leaving to take another job. You know, Autumn Burke uh, leaving to basically go into kind of that third house Sacramento political culture. Um, uh, does that mean that in 
10 years, if she wants to run for Congress, she can't. I don't think so at all. I don't think that it puts a scar on her. I think that voters are just like, oh, she's not running for office again. We'll vote for somebody else. Into the rumor mill, but uh, are you <laughs> hearing rumors of, uh, of any other members potentially thinking about leaving? I know that I've heard one rumor. It has not happened so far. So maybe it was just that. But I'm just wondering if there are folks out there that you expect will be tendering their resignations or at least saying they aren't going to run. If you're hearing anything uh, behind the water cooler in this imaginary office when none of us go to anymore. So are you telling me, Tim, that you've just witnessed a 27 person list of legislators that are leaving and you want more? (laughs) <laughs> you're, you're like an addict. You need, you're, you need just, you need one more hit. Um, uh, no, I don't know the, uh, there have been a couple members that, uh, I had heard were going to run for something else, or, um, there were some movements that I expected to happen that, that never really materialized. Um, I don't know how much it was kind of like the, almost like a fantasy baseball version of, of political outcomes that I was hearing echoes of. But, you know, there was there was a period of time where there was like potentially going to be a member of Congress leaving and then like people running for that office and then people running for their offices and even involving one of the statewide electeds maybe uh, uh, vacating. Uh, but it just never happened. Um, so, um, yeah, we hear rumors and sometimes it can just be like, People sitting around used to be sitting around at Chicory or Ambrosia. Now, I guess they're sitting around on Zooms coming up with like, wouldn't it be crazy if this person vacated and then that person ran for that and then so-and-so would run for their position. And, and next thing you know, those kind of things start to bounce around and, and uh, take on a life of their own. But, um, you know, so m- maybe there would be one other thing that happens that we're not seeing right now, but um is this a golden era of lobbyists with all these changes? I don't the- know. You know, the, I just theory on lobbyists right now. Um, you know, you've part. It, what's really interesting to me is the impact that COVID has had on kind of the third house. Mm-hmm. And uh, as most of your listeners know, my wife, Jody Hicks, used to be the chief lobbyist for the California Medical Association. Then she was a contract lobbyist and then she worked for Mercury. Uh, before going over to Planned Parenthood. And um, so she was kind of a top tier lobbyist in the state. And um, it feels like the lobbyist core at the day that they closed session in March of 2020, wherever you were on the pecking order in that lobbyist core on that day is basically like frozen in time now. If you were a junior lobbyist, the worst day to start your first job as a junior lobbyist was like March 1st, 2020, because you come in as a junior lobbyist, you have no way to like climb the ladder through like hanging out at chops or chicory and going to events and going to meetings and and going to hearings and walking around the hallways and all these ways that you kind of move up the ladder as a lobbyist. Um, So, you know, the lobbyists that are the top tier have stayed the top tier. Those that were kind of in the middle, I think, don't have a lot of ability to move around. And those that were totally entry level never get a break in this COVID era when, like, you're trying to, like, persuade people by calling them or Zooms or t- texting yeah. members or whatever the hell. So if you're a firm and you're saying, hey, we need to get a top-notch lobbyist, 
how can we get somebody who's going to be a top-notch lobbyist that's already not a top-notch lobbyist? Well, Autumn Burke, she has everybody. She can text any member. Like getting people who are legislators would be where I would look. Um, and so I think that the lobbying core is in an interesting place right now. And when it comes out of COVID and when we do finally get back to normal, hopefully someday, the the wheels of like upward mobility of lobbyists being able to uh, become, you know, more effective will uh, start turning again. But right now I kind of feel like the lobbying core is frozen in time of whatever it was in March of 2020. You know, it's interesting you say that because we had talked to a lobbyist who's uh, been around Sacramento for many, many years. And they said the same thing that didn't really impact their practice because they already had every single cell phone number they could possibly need. But said, yeah, I don't know what you do if you're just starting out and you can't go into someone's office or walk, you know, walk down the street. But for this particular lobbyist, it really didn't make all that much difference for me. So, yeah, totally. That's what I've seen, too. Like, um, you're exactly right. The lobbyists that have developed the relationships to be able to text any member they they want whenever they need to, um, they still have that connection. And those without them have no way to start to develop those relationships in a meaningful way from scratch. It would be so hard to be a junior lobbyist right now. Hey, Paul, I had one last question. The uh, candidate filing deadlines, I was looking on the Secretary of State's website, February 7th through March 11th. So if you uh, do resign, if you're a legislator and incumbent saying you resign, you leave after March 11th, does your name still appear on the ballot if you want to take a job somewhere? But after the 11th, after March 11th, is it still on the ballot or is that a meaningful deadline at all? Yeah. If you, uh, if you're, if you file for office and then you resign, you would, your name would still be on the ballot. If you uh, say I'm running, I'm running, I'm running. And then on March 11th, you just fail to turn in paperwork yeah. Uh, then you aren't on the ballot and then there's an extension of time for people to decide to run for that office. That avoids this trick that theoretically you could do or that had been done in the past long time ago where like I'm a member of Congress, the filing deadlines, March 11th, it gets to be like 459 on March 11th. And I come out and say, I'm resigning. And Tim's got the paperwork filled out and he plops it down on the counter and says, I'm running and boom, they've basically frozen out the, the election by, um, you know, not having some period of time after the incumbent says they're not going to run. And so there would be an extension if somebody doesn't file. Um, and we might see by March 11th, one or two places where somebody we fully expected was going to, you know, run, end up resigning. Um, but I don't know where that is right now. Uh, Paul Mitchell, thank you very much. And now it's time for... Uh Take 15 of who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Uh, Tim, it seemed to me someone who had a very bad week is Todd Spitzer, former state assembly member uh, and now the district attorney of Orange County, who, by the way, is seeking re-election, uh, which makes this doubly bad that this stuff is coming up right now, as we'll explain in a second here. Uh, he's been hit on two fronts. One, a video uh, recording of him surfaced this week 
in which uh, he was addressing the Iranian-American Bar Association. I didn't even know there was one, but there you go. The Iranian-American Bar Association, which he used the N-word repeatedly and used profanity. It did not look good in a video replay. Uh, he was discussing a hate crime that occurred the year before. The second thing is a complaint, legal complaint filed by Tracy Miller, a former ranking prosecutor in the DA's department, accusing him of retaliating against her when she tried to protect women in the in the department from sexual harassment. Those two things popped up this week, and Spitzer's had a lot of uh, negative attention directed to him, and he's tried to respond to that. Tim, what do you think? Uh, yeah, that sounds like a pretty bad week to me. I'd wondered if we were going to be talking about Herb Wesson, uh, who you know didn't have a great week, but in comparative com- in comparison had a great week compared to Mr. Spitzer. Yeah. Uh, he had a fine week compared to Spitzer. He, you know, he's a former city council member, a former speaker of the assembly, popular politician in LA, uh, and he was turned out. So he's free as air right now. Well, the council needed uh, to fill a vacant seat left by Mark Ridley Thomas, who you may or may not know is under federal investigation and corruption allegations. There's a seat vacant the council voted unanimously to put Herb in that seat. Um, and it looked like he was, yeah, plain sailing was going. And then a judge ruled, nope, can't do that. He can't take the seat. I don't know what's happened since then, but, you know, Herb was up, down, up, and then out. So I'm not sure what's happening now, but his week wasn't that good either. Yeah, well, although that's assuming he even wanted the gig. Although I guess, you know, who doesn't want to be city councilman uh, for, a, for a brief moment? You can't do wrong because he's not going to be running for re-election. Yeah, I so know. He's just in for a free ride. So uh, How much damage can he do in just a little while? You know? Yeah, exactly. Well, but I don't think it, uh, however much he may have wanted that seat, I don't think it even compares to uh, Mr. Spitzer's uh, plight this week. Although, you know, frankly, it sounds like these if the reports are accurate, at least of the sexual harassment, uh, these are problems of his own making. Yeah. Well, thank God for Southern California, which provides a lot of the interesting talk we have on the show. So Tim Foster, thank you very much. Thanks, John. Um, This is John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Thanks again. Bye-bye. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.